Hey, everybody. We're back with the So We Speak podcast, and we're doing another one of our walks through a book of the Bible. And this week, we're doing the book of James. And as we're preparing, one of the things we're talking about is we're feeling pretty good about these book overviews. We've got this nice form that we've been going through with the intro and the background and the outline. And as we're preparing, we realize James just does not fit that pattern. So the overview today is going to be a little bit different because in a lot of ways, James is just a really different New Testament book. And one of the first things I always like to think about when when we're doing these is, what's the public perception of James? So when we just kick off James and we say we're going to talk about it, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Uh, good question. For me, and I don't know if this is true for everyone, but I'd say a lot of Christians think of the book of James as talking a lot about very practical things. And mm-hmm. if nothing else, I'm going to guess that most people know James as the book that's about uh, faith without works is dead. If, if I could pick yeah. a phrase, I'd say maybe that's what most Christians know. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, you know, it's funny when you're sitting around, you're thinking about what you want to teach or you're brainstorming sermon series or uh, Sunday school lessons, whatever you find yourself doing. And, and it's one of those perennial books that comes up when, you, when your discussion tends toward, we need something really practical. What can we do that's really practical? Everybody's first thing is, well, we, we should go through James. We should preach through James. <laughs> that's right. But the thing about preaching and teaching James is it's difficult to teach in that it reads a lot like the book of Proverbs. Um, If you were going to teach through the book of Proverbs exegetically, you'd be changing the subject every seven minutes in your (laughs) sermon. That's true. And James is really the same way. It does have several of the more famous New Testament passages in it. I think of the opening of James is probably one that we've all heard before. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Easier said than done. Um, Faith versus works. The, The end of James is really famous where it says... If any of you are sick, pray. If any of you are rejoicing, pray. Uh, If any of you is suffering, call the elders of the church and have them pray. And then it gives that great example of Elijah. Um, What what other parts of the book do you think are pretty well known? You know, I think uh, the part in chapter 3 is on the tongue. If Mm -hmm. uh, I know that I've been in a number of Bible studies over the years, and when we do James, we spend a lot of time particularly the men's Bible studies uh, in terms of how do we tame our tongue in our close relationships. But maybe, uh, you know, some of the passages that talk about how the tongue is a fire that can set a whole forest ablaze. It's a rudder that can steer the ship. And the idea of controlling our tongue and being careful with what we say is one of, I've probably taken as much out of that practically as maybe anything else in James through the years. Mm-hmm. You always get a good taming the tongue lesson in James. And that theme appears a couple of times in James. And then as you read through the book, you realize there are some passages that are never talked about in Bible studies and sermons. And so we're going to cover a good portion of the book today by outline. But as we do with most of these, let's set the stage for this book. There's a lot of background we should talk about going into the book of James. And the first question would be, who is James? Great question. His name, by the way, this is interesting, but in the Greek texts, is Jacob. 
it comes to us in English through a variety of juxtapositions as James, but uh, he's probably named after the great Jewish patriarch, Jacob. Mm-hmm. James is pretty much, I think most scholars, there's a lot of, you know, obviously arguing about anything about the text of the New Testament, but I think most people think it's quite reasonable to suppose this is the James, the brother of Jesus. Now, there was a one of the apostles, early disciples named James, but he was killed very early on after the resurrection. And James, the brother of Jesus, becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem, and we're introduced to him, and he's mentioned in Paul's letters and in the book of Acts. So this James is probably the very, very devout brother of Jesus, who doubted Jesus before his death and resurrection, but became one of his greatest followers afterwards. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, this is a little bit of an insight into how you get to some of this evidence. Part of it is church tradition, obviously, but there's some pretty good deductive ways that you can get to James being the brother of Jesus. Um, first, of, first of all, and this is a great argument to think through, anytime we talk about a book in the Bible where the author is disputed, um, if this book is written as early as we think it is, which is definitely by the middle of the first century, then for it to be someone not James pretending to be James is hugely unlikely. Right. And the reasons for that would be James was there. He was a popular guy. We see James in other books of the New Testament. We see him appear in Galatians and in Acts, as you mentioned, as mm-hmm. one of the pillars of the New Testament church, one of the main leaders of the Jerusalem church. So first of all, a, a book that's masquerading as being written by James that really wasn't would have been snuffed out pretty early. The second thing I think about is how did James become such an important leader in the Jerusalem church so quickly after the resurrection? Because if you remember, when Paul's recounting his story, he's talking about things that are happening in the late 30s, early 40s, And he mentions going and seeing that James was one of the men who appeared to be an authority, to be a leader. Uh, In in fact, such an authority that he's on par with Peter. And you have to ask yourself, what would it take for a person to be on par with Peter within 10 years of Jesus' resurrection? Right. Uh, If it's not the apostle, then being Jesus' brother is a a pretty great answer to that. And so we're pretty confident this is written by James, leader in the New Testament church, brother of Jesus. And that gives us two epistles in the New Testament that are written by Jesus' siblings. We have James and we have Jude. And and the interesting thing with Jude is, like James, he doesn't come right out and tell you that he's Jesus' brother. Right. James says, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude says that and brother of James, which again gives us another hint at how uh, integral James was in the history of the church. There are some interesting uh, stories outside of Scripture about James. Um, my my favorite is that he was known as having knees like a camel, <laughs> yes, because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer that he, that he had built up calluses on his knees. I, that's a pretty good thing to be known as uh, in the first century church. Absolutely. You know, the other thing that I uh, think of when I think of James, not to get into this too far, but 
it's pretty clear that the in the early church you have a group of very devout Jews who become Christians, become believers in Jesus Christ, and they apparently really looked up to James as also being a very devout Jew, who of course mm-hmm. becomes a believer. Now you can get into the dispute about the Judaizers and people who said you need to become a devout Jew before you can be a Christian. Well, it's clear that James did not support that position because of Acts chapter 15. And, you know, basically James says it's clear to us that we should not put that burden on the Gentiles. But what's interesting to me is that he grew up in a household uh, that was devout, and then he had the respect of Jews and Christians alike because of his own personal piety. Mm-hmm. I think it's likely that, as the Gospels mentioned, James and Jude and even Mary, to an extent, have a hard time understanding Jesus as the Messiah in his earthly ministry. But something changes for James, certainly, and for Jude at the resurrection. When Jesus is raised from the dead, they believe Jesus. They see him probably as he was raised um, they spend time with the apostles who walked with him, and then they become leaders in the in the New Testament church. What's really interesting about James with that background is how little James says about Jesus personally, theologically, uh, historically in his book. Any any thoughts on that? That's that is a really great point because it's clear uh, to me from the content of James that he is really very consistent with the teaching of Jesus. In fact, I would say that if Jesus provided a moral framework uh, for the kingdom living, James takes that and then turns it into the ethical aspect, the actual practical, here are the kinds of things that guide our behavior. James does not seem to be divorced from the teachings of Jesus, but I do think it's interesting that he does not mention Jesus so much. I do think the audience of this letter may also have had a little bit to do with that. He is talking to people who were uh, Jewish, basically, who uh, at least their background was Jewish. And he begins to basically take the law of Moses and in light of the cross begins to talk about how then now shall we live. I'll tell you one example is, uh, this is a little bit technical, but the way James uses the word law is very similar to the way Paul uses the word law. Not so Mm -hmm. much meaning the law of Moses, something that could make you righteous. Neither of them believed that, of course, that anyone could be righteous through the law. But James uses that term in the same way of the law is that system of behavior that could never lead you to righteousness. So even though he doesn't mention Jesus, he seems to be very, very consistent with the teachings of Jesus. Uh, Would you add anything to that? Yeah, that's true. And I I would say James often gets compared to the book of Proverbs, and I think that's a good comparison. It it is a wisdom kind of literature. But if we were to pick another passage of the Bible that is closest to the book of James, it probably would be the Sermon on the Mount. Right. So you have Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount doing exactly what you just said, taking the, the law of the Old Testament, not as a guide for what it means to be found righteous before God, 
but as a trustworthy exposition of what God thinks is good for human beings to do and to think and to in the ways they behave. And then he is he is extending the law into practical examples around the cross of Christ. Exactly. We see the same kind of thing when you know, when Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And then he says, but if you commit, uh, if you look lustfully upon a woman with your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. That kind of extension saying, look, the, the standards of the law, not only can you not keep them, but they go further than, than even what you thought they meant. James is doing that kind of thing in his book. Now, I wonder if what we're getting from James is some kind of sermon or uh, at least a digest of his sermons, because the other thing that's really interesting about it is like Jesus' teaching and unlike Paul's teaching, he does not draw a clear line from the work of Jesus Christ to what we're supposed to be doing in light of it. He just tells us what we're supposed to be doing. And and I think this is probably where some of the confusion comes in the book of James is he doesn't write like Paul, but he does speak in a way that's consistent with Paul and is consistent with Jesus' teaching. Um, and, and I think one of the things that a lot of people know about the book of James is the uh, juxtaposition between James and Paul, which is probably most famously been characterized by Martin Luther. Mm. So if you know anything about Luther, you probably have heard about his disdain for the book of James. <laughs> yes. And uh, th- this is not one of Luther's strongest points, but you can see how he gets here. He, he thought that James should be ripped out of the New Testament. Uh, so for as much as uh, we often praise him for Sola Scriptura and uh, mm-hmm. the Reformation doctrines of the Bible, I, I don't think that Luther probably literally meant for people to rip it out of, its, out of their Bibles. But I do think he was saying it's very difficult when you're reading it to reconcile to certain things that you read in Paul. For example, uh, the whole thing between faith and works in Paul and in James, just at first glance, does look like a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? It does. In, in uh, one sense, uh, a couple of things I'd add to that. Uh, by the way, one thing on Luther before we leave him behind uh, in the Middle Ages. I think it's a good thing, by the way, uh, to recognize how human some of the giants of the faith were that came before us. I mean, Luther and Calvin and Wesley, and while we admire them and they really elucidated the scripture for a lot of people, they were humans. And so, for example, uh, Luther's perspective on the book of James and Luther's anti-Semitism, perhaps later in his life, those are things that uh, failed and flawed human beings do. Nevertheless, he, uh, he taught us all a great deal, and his courage is unbelievable. But I think it's good to remember that with teachers today is no matter how brilliant, no matter how much good work you do, we are all sinners in need of forgiveness at times. But back to your question, one of the things that uh, that I would kind of harmonize that a little, because I agree, it does look on the surface, if you just pluck that out and don't read the rest of James, that he and Paul have an issue, because Paul is writing to an audience and emphasizing you're saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast in their own self-righteousness. I've added a little to that passage. And then you come to James, and one of the famous passages, by the way, in chapter 1, down about verse 22, is, again, is one that most people 
remember, is be doers of the word and not just hearers only. If you do, you deceive yourselves. That's interesting to me for two reasons. One, he says be doers of the word. He doesn't say be doers of the law. He says be doers of the word. In other words, put the message of Jesus Christ into practice. If he were making a list of rules by which you could attain self-righteousness, he would have said be doers of the law. But he says be doers of the word. So then when you come along in uh, further in the book, when you get to uh, chapter uh, 2 and, and beyond where he talks about faith and works, you have to understand he's now emphasizing deeds that flow from being one who does the word. So you, you see that James, in my view, James and Paul see are emphasizing two sides of the same coin. Uh, I don't know, that may not have been very clear in that, but I think if you take the context, he wants to say, let's move on from the word into what does it look like when you live it out. Paul does a lot of that too. He simply wants to stress the idea that stop trying to justify yourself and emphasizes the fact that uh, it's not works but faith that saves us. Mm-hmm. I would I would put it I would put it in, in this scheme. Paul is primarily writing to people who are new converts, who are if if they have any Jewish background at all, they're Hellenized Jews. So they're outside of they're outside of Jerusalem. Right. They're outside of the regions where we would have a high concentration of Jews who are not at this point fairly Greek, fairly Roman in their um, social status, in their cultural world. And when Paul writes about uh, the faith, he begins like there are non-Christians or like there are pagans in the audience. So, for example, if you think about the book of Ephesians, he spends the first three chapters of Ephesians giving you the architecture of what it means to be saved. How how right. are we saved? What, what about Christ's death actually applies to us? Then, in almost every one of Paul's letters, he shifts in the second half to begin to say, okay, in light of that, what should we be doing? Right. And you get the second half of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, where you get really practical, um, moral framework for, for how Christians should live. The interesting thing is their, their style is completely different. But if you read the book of James like the second half of one of Paul's That's letters, a good way of putting the it. content is really similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it's the same way that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches about what people who trust in him should do. What does it look like to be in the kingdom? But he doesn't spend very much time talking about how you get into the kingdom and what his death accomplished for you to get into the kingdom. Um, And some of this probably has to do with audience. So even if James is writing probably earlier than Paul's earliest letter, um, his audience is so different that their themes interplay in in a complementary instead of a contradictory way. The last thing I want to say about about chapter two, really, the faith and works, is that this the the ultimate implications of what James is saying fit perfectly with what Paul says, and and a passage that highlights this would be the fruit of the spirit passage in the book of Galatians. Mm-hmm. So James is saying, uh, "You have faith. Well, I'll show you my faith by my works," and that's the exact same thing that Paul argues in. Uh, chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians. If you're walking by the Spirit, he says, 
then you are not going to gratify the desires of the flesh. If you really believe there's going to be changes in your life. And this is part of the New Testament that's pretty clear that that is hard to hear in our churches sometimes. We have been given the responsibility to judge what people do as it pertains to what they actually believe. So we're, we're able to say, okay, the fruit of the flesh, Paul says, is anger and sexual immorality and strife and division. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and, and the rest. So we look at somebody's life and we say, wow, I don't see any peace or patience or kindness or goodness. And we don't immediately jump and say, well, that person's obviously going to hell. What we do is say, I wonder what's going on on a belief level Right. Because if they believed the things that we know are true about God, true about them, true about the cross, it would lead them, the spirit would lead them to act differently. So then we want to talk about what's going on beneath the surface. James has a very similar framework. It's not it's not that you're justified by your actions based out of your own effort. It's that you're justified by the actions that proceed from the faith that you do have. So neither James nor Paul would be expecting people who don't believe to act like Christians. Right. But both of them do believe that if, you, if you've trusted in Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, you should be acting like a Christian. And in that way, the, the books are very, very similar in what they say. So that, to me, is probably the biggest piece of the background. What else do we need to know before we start reading the book of James? Uh, that's a great, great point. Uh, I think when we read the book of James, he is steeped, in my view, he is very much steeped in the Jewish tradition of Proverbs, which is the living, living it out. And I know that's what you just talked about, but he is very much interested in the obedience aspect of what does it look like to be an obedient Christian. And I, I would add on to what you just said and say that this is not it's, it's an idea that we don't hear a lot today. It's not as popular in current uh, American Christianity. But you have Jesus in John chapter 15, 16, talking about, if you love me, keep my commandments. And Jesus, like five times, he connects the idea of love. Now, we like the idea of love, and rightfully so, but he connects those two. And then I want to take you to a little gem of a book that I do not believe has ever been quoted thus far on So We Speak. And that is the book of 2 John, 2 John. Mm-hmm. And he also makes this. Listen to 2 John. This is along about verse 5 and 6. You know, I'm writing you this commandment that we love one another. And this is love that we live according to his commandments. And so mm-hmm. I think when we read James, we should expect that he is speaking to people who do believe in Jesus Christ and saying, if this then is, is what you believe, here now is what you should behave. He talks about everything from your attitude in chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials. Well, that's a, a, a turning the world upside down change of, of attitude to very practical things. And that is be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. So I think when you read James, you should expect uh, to go, in my view, go a little bit slowly and do it as you read it.
if we're going to chart a path through the book of James, one of the things we notice pretty quickly is he is keying in on those little sin areas in your life that are really easy to overlook. Uh, oftentimes because the things that he is confronting are really culturally acceptable things to do. Uh, it reminds me of the book that Jerry Bridges uh, wrote called Acceptable Sins. Yes. Or is that what, is, is that, what that book's called? Yeah. <laughs> Acceptable Sins. Um, where he's talking about the things that actually will get you by in society pretty well. In fact, it's a really good thing to do in society. But the Bible says that's actually not the way that Christians are supposed to behave. One of the first examples that hits you is, is halfway through chapter 1, you get to verse 9. And it says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. And then it says, uh, you know, don't show favoritism. Yeah. If somebody comes in and you can tell that they have money and power and they're popular and they're extroverted, they're easy to talk to, and they bring a ton of people with them, and, and uh, they're the ultimate person to have visiting your church, that doesn't mean they're actually any more important to God than the person who comes and is not have any wealth, doesn't have any connections, uh, doesn't really have anything to offer you, you should treat those people the same way. You know, that's a great point. There are two, if I can dive in just a little bit, there are two sins that James points out. He actually says, this is how you're supposed to behave. But there are two sins that I think are so common to us. I, I won't say they're acceptable, but they're they're so common that you have to wonder, do I accept these in my life? And one is the sin of partiality, and the other is the sin of gossip. So, And James talks about the tongue and how we use it, and gossip is one of the more malicious forms of sin and one of the ones that are seems to be most under the radar, and it's one that I'm convicted of at times. And the sin of partiality, and I realize this isn't the only place in the Bible that talks about race relations and how Christians should view uh, the other, meaning people who don't look like me, people of different ethnicity or color of their skin or whatever. But this idea of partiality is seeing people the way God sees them. God sees lost and found. He doesn't see rich and poor, black and white. Uh, you know, ethnicity versus another ethnicity. To me, those two things alone are so applicable to our Christian walk today. They are, and they're, and they're difficult to do. Um, it, it takes a lifetime to be able to work out the things that we read in the book of James. I, I think a, another one similar to gossip is just the control of the tongue. And James is pretty open on this. It's a, it's a comfort to hear him say it is very difficult. No man can tame, can completely tame the tongue. Uh, it, it is the rudder of a giant ship, or it is a tiny little fire that uh, begins to burn everything. And I've always loved his teaching, and this is another famous passage in chapter 3, verse 10. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My right. brothers, these things should not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. It reminds you uh, of what Jesus says, that uh, what comes out of your mouth is what defiles you, not what goes in. And uh, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Um, that's biblical wisdom through the entire Bible, but very difficult to do, very difficult to actually put into practice. One thing, too, about James that is, is an interesting feature is how much insight we get 
into the early church gatherings that we don't get anywhere else. So, for example, in the in the topic of partiality, we get a little glimpse into what it must have been like to gather in the church in Jerusalem. Uh-huh. Uh, we see uh, probably pretty small. You recognize who's coming in. Um, you have stations or they don't seem like assigned seats, but customary seats that people can sit in, probably around a table. Um, we see in the end of the book of James and in another one of the really famous sections, uh, the work of the elders in the early church, right. that uh, they are actually taking initiative, shepherding, praying for people. I know this is something that a lot of churches, their elders still do, is if you're sick or if you need prayer, you will ask a pastor or a group of the elders and they will get together and get anointing oil in a lot of cases and pray for the person. And that's from this passage. It's a reflection of what they were doing just a couple of years after Jesus was raised and ascended into heaven. Good point. Can can I insert one thing there? Because you're right. If this is written possibly as early as, say, 40 A.D., if the uh, resurrection is 30 or 33, your point's well taken that they're doing, this is what the church looks like extremely early. But talking about the partiality and the rich person sits in the good seat, the poor person sits on the floor. You remember when we were in Israel and we saw the way the uh, uh, synagogues were laid out. You know, they had seats mm-hmm. around the wall and then they had, uh, and I'm pretty sure they didn't have folding chairs in those days. So, you know, people right. did sit on the floor in the middle. Now, I'm not saying the early Christians were in synagogues. They weren't. Uh, but, you know, we tend to take what we know and replicate those surroundings. In other words, they were probably in a house, maybe they were around a table, but they still had the idea with them that, oh, well, you know, we grew up in the synagogue, and in the synagogue, well, you know, you save the seats for the important people. And I just think it's mm-hmm. interesting that uh, he's telling the church, no, we're, we're not taking the form of partiality from Judaism into Christianity. I just think that's really interesting. Right. That's a great point. That, that is really interesting. Um, chapter 4 is often neglected. Maybe it hits a little close to home. The first 12 verses or so are about worldliness. And this is something that James hits pretty hard. Uh, he, he's the one that says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Which yeah. is kind of startling when you read that. Strong what, words. What kind of context do we need to add to that? You know, that's really interesting. You know, that passage says, Do you not realize that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then he goes on to talk about how Scripture says God is jealous for us. You know, he will not abide two masters, if you will. It makes me think of the Jesus' teaching, as you pointed out earlier, James is, is really clearly aware of the Sermon on the Mount and a lot of Jesus' teaching where he says no one can serve two masters. And the mm-hmm. two he chooses are very interesting. You cannot serve God and money. Mm-hmm. And so I do think when he speaks of the world, he t- I, I read that as that world system and its gods and goddesses, and one of the great gods of this world is materialism, the things that we Mm -hmm. look to for comfort. So I see a a really strong echo of Jesus' teaching there. Yeah, I don't think this is a proof text for uh, being Amish, that uh, (laughs) any any association or any friendships in the world 
will lead you away from God. I think what it's saying is closer to what you just said. Friendship with the world, the gods of the world, the trends and fads of the world, really friendship with the things that the world, apart from Christ, loves and worships will put you at enmity with God. And so on the one hand, I think we need to be firm enough to say, hey, typically the world is at odds with God. We need to understand that just because a lot of people think something or do something or just because it's a cultural norm for us does not mean that it's okay for Christians to do. Right. And at the same time, we need to be careful not to say any association with the world is distance from God. And we, we, we have this false sectarianism where we we actually can't do the ministry we've been given to do, which is to reach the world for Christ, to bless the nations through Christ. Uh, So that requires a little bit of nuance. Um, And and additionally, I think it reemphasizes something that Jesus said that, that often we neglect to our detriment, which is Jesus teaches his disciples, it's more difficult than a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to go to heaven. And if you remember the the way that the, the disciples responded is really astounding. And they say, well, then who can go to heaven? You know, who could do this? Right. Because for them, the, the social pecking order was the same as it is for us. If the successful and beautiful and, and likable people can't make it, then who could possibly make it? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. Right. But with God, all things are possible because God looks at the heart. But uh, I think a lot of times the sentiment when we, when we hear Jesus say that, it's, it's more difficult for uh, a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which is to say it is impossible uh, for, rich, for the rich to go to heaven. We typically think, okay, so it's harder because you know, money can, can take your focus away from God. But I think I'm up to the challenge. I would, I would like to have that set of challenges <laughs> no, over, over the challenges of being poor. I think that's probably our, our gut. But James hits this really, really hard in chapter 5. And you know what? So does John. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt your quote, but before we leave there, John in 1 John says this in chapter 2, verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. And here's where I draw my idea of how they're using that word world. And John says, all those things that are in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions. Mm-hmm. And so, and then, of course, you and I know that you see the same thing in Paul, the warnings against placing our trust in riches. I'm sorry, go ahead with that. Mm-hmm. But I, I just wanted to point out that this is not unique. You're going to see Jesus and James and John and uh, Paul all echo this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a theme in the New Testament that's that's neglected. And and James says in chapter 5, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Wow. Yeah, that's really strong. You know what that reminds me of? Just finished teaching on the seven letters in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, from Jesus to the churches. And one of the things he says is, you think you are rich, but you are poor. You think you don't need anything, but you are blind, poor, pitiful, and naked. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's that same idea. And it's, it's, again, that's very strong language as well. 
It is, and, and it's and it's not to say that the rich are evil, right? But it's to warn them that money is more seductive than we think it is. Right. It's something that uh, we're t- we we tend to get comfortable with, and certainly in America, we tend to get comfortable with wealth, uh, and and it can really capture our hearts and our imaginations and our desires, uh, when and we don't even realize it, um, and keep us from from trusting in God and from depending on him. And so we know from the New Testament that it's not wrong to be rich. And in fact, a lot of what's happening in the New Testament is powered by people who have plenty of money, whose hearts are surrendered to God, and they've decided to further the kingdom of God instead of their own kingdom with their money. So you see the people that are hosting churches in their homes, the people that are supporting Paul and his missionary journeys, the ones who are giving money for the famine in Jerusalem, all the things that we give our money to now uh, are the people in, in in the New Testament whose hearts are being transformed and they're using what they've been given for God's purposes instead of their own. That's that's really the end goal. But I also think sometimes we shy away from what the Bible really says, the perils of trusting in wealth and how easy it is to trust in wealth can be uh, for all of us. Well, and here's an analogy that I like to think of in that regard, because you make a good point. This isn't saying that if you have a lot of money, you will go to hell. Obviously, that's not what it's saying. But here's the the way I think Jesus teaches it. If you know somebody who is managing uh, a big hedge fund and uh, you look at them, you say, well, you live in a little house and you don't drive a very big car. And they say, well, in fact, I, I don't have much money. And yet this person might be in charge of investing billions of dollars. So my point is there's a difference between I am a rich person and I have been given a trust of a certain amount of money to invest for my master. And that's the way I think uh, the people that I know whose hearts have been transformed no longer think they are rich people. They think they have been entrusted with a fund from God to invest in the kingdom. And that's a radical heart change and a radical... Uh, mind change. Yeah, that's a great, great way to put it. Well, uh, wrapping up the text itself, what are your takeaways from the book of James or your uh, insights or recommendations for those who are going to read this book? Uh, Again, I would say if you read this book, it's great to read through it. I'm a big fan of just reading the Bible, but this one is particularly suited in my experience to read thought sections and then live with them a little bit. I love doing James in a study that meets once a week or read a section. For example, uh, in chapter one, there's uh, the first half of the chapter talks about the testing of our faith and what does it look like to have faith. And the second half is about hearing the word and what does it look like to do the word. And then partiality. I like to read these things and then sit with them and pray about them and put them into practice uh, in my life and pray for these things. I think one of the greatest things out of James is that no man can tame the tongue. And then you might be tempted to ask, well, I guess then we're just never going to be able to be completely holy and I guess we should settle for what we have. I don't think that's what he means. I think what he means is the tongue is so evil that it's beyond your power, but it's not beyond the power of the Holy Spirit. And mm-hmm. everything in James, as I read it, I realize I'm going to read the book of James and feel like the world's biggest failure. 
because I will not live up to it. Maybe for a little while, but I will not live up to it. Or it's going to drive me to my knees and submit to the Holy Spirit and say, shape me so that these are the things that I long to do. So I like to read the book of James slowly in a study and begin to put it into practice as you read. Yeah, I would say I would say something similar in that uh, the book the book of James is very hard to read because it's convicting. Mm-hmm. Uh, as as uh, Lance Ward has said before, I, I, I had to stop reading it was too convicting. <laughs> that that will happen to you as you read the book of James. And the important thing is to actually do what it says right. and to take time as as you mentioned, I think my thought is similar. We also need to remember the grace that empowers us to accomplish and to live like the book of James teaches us to live. So just because he doesn't draw that line like Paul does doesn't mean that he thinks that we can do this with our own strength and with our own power. It's by submitting to God, to giving our hearts and our desires to him, giving our preferences and our will to him, that we're conformed and led by the Spirit to be obedient to what he teaches. And so uh, we don't think that we can just accomplish everything in James, uh, but we believe as we trust Christ, these things are going to happen in our lives and we put our effort there to uh, to live like this. And, and, and I think I would end on this note. The book of James ends on prayer and uh, on walking with one another. It says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, bring him back. And if somebody brings him back, let him know that uh, he is saving his soul from death and, and covering a multitude of sins that the Christian life is meant to do together uh, with other people, and it's meant to do with the help of God. And so reading the book of James really is an insight into that. One of the things we mentioned earlier, that uh, if you're going to read the book of James and do it, you may become like James. You may get camel knees, uh, right. and you may have uh, rough spots from the amount of time that you have to spend praying the book of James. And so I would say read it, meditate on it, journal, ask somebody to hold you accountable to do it with you, and then uh, through the entire process, pray and ask God to help you do what His Word says to do. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.